Uh, today I have a special uh, presentation. I'm trying to cover as much ground as possible because we're now, this week's parasha is the end of Bereshit. And I thought I'd just give a little brief overview of Bereshit until we get to our parasha. And, you know, Bereshit is, starts with a big bang, uh, not to be taken uh, with a pinch of salt, but it's literal. It really starts with a big bang, Bereshit, Parai Lokim. Hashem created in the beginning, the heaven and the earth, which is a tremendous, you know, there's a famous uh, Professor Jastro, he was the head of uh, NASA space program uh, 30 years ago or so, and he writes in an article in New York Times magazine uh, 30 years ago, he says, here we are, uh, the scientists climbing the mountain of knowledge, and we get to the top of the mountain, and we see a bunch of rabbis over there telling us, we told you so. The Big Bang. The world started with the Big Bang. Here is Bereshit Barakim. The book of Bereshit starts with the Big Bang. It starts with a cosmological event of tremendous proportions. And in a one second, split second, Hashem created the world. Boom. There, there it goes. And uh, what's interesting about it is, from a theological perspective, it uses the word Elohim. Bereshit bara Elohim. Who creates the world? Elohim. Elohim, we know, is the name for God. Obviously, there's only one God, but he has many names. What does that mean? He has many attributes. What does that mean? Ramam says, don't take it literally. But it's from our perspective. From our perspective, there's a God of judgment. We can relate to God through mercy. We can relate to God through judgment, depending on how we are treated. So if we are treated with uh, mercy, then we look at the God as a God of mercy. We're treated with judgment. We look at the God of judgment. What, what does judgment mean? What does it mean, a God of judgment? So very interesting. Uh, judgment is... Dean, Dean is exact, a very exacting God. God is exact. You know, God created the world. He didn't create the world with chesed. He didn't create the world with kindness because kindness seems to be the opposite of exactness. When a person is kind to someone, they're giving them, not necessarily because they deserve it, <laughs> but judgment is a person deserves it, exactly what they deserve. They deserve good, they'll get good. They deserve bad, they'll get bad. That's just judgment, the God of judgment is a God of being exact. Hashem created the world in, a, in exactitude. What does that mean? He created a world where there's no uh, frivolity. There's no wishy-washiness. In other words, everything is computed. Everything goes according to God's plan. The sun rises at a certain time and the sun sets at a certain time. You can program all the movements of the universe to uh, uh, many decimal places because it's an exact system. That's what it means when it says God created the world with the midah of Elohim, which is judgment. Everything runs on time. You know, there's, there's two societies, at least in this world, which are very, very exact. The Germans and the Japanese, their trains run really exactly on time. You know, the Germans, they're called Yekis, and the Yekis are known to be on time all the time. You know, the joke is what happens when a Sephardi marries a Yeki uh, is always 10 minutes late exactly. So... Uh, so that, but the, the two societies which are the most exact are the two societies that are most judgmental. They're the two societies that cause the most havoc in the Second World War, the Germans and the Japanese. That's judgment. Judgment is exactitude, but there's no room for error. In other words, no one can ever be forgiven. In that kind of society, nothing is ever forgiven because it's a judgmental society. It's an exact society. Anyway, God created the world with exactitude. The universe is meant to operate in a very, very tight frame. Um, the tolerances built into the universe are very, very minute. Everything works 
according to plan. Everything has, everything can be based on a formula. And uh, everything, there's a, there's a constants in the universe. There's a, there's a gravitational constant, which I like. It's called the big G. It's the gravitational constant, which is uh, one of the measurements, if you want to measure the forces between two masses, to use this gravitational constant. Uh, constant. I call the G constant, God constant. There's a G constant in the world also called the God constant. Anyway, so the world was created with exactitude. However, there's one joker in the pack. When Hashem created the world, he also created the world with a joker in the pack, which is the most inexact being, and that is human beings. How do we know? So I just want to draw your attention to verse number seven in chapter two of Breshit, and it says, Vayitzer Hashem Elohim Adam. So remember, Hashem created the world with the name Elohim, which is judgment. When it came to the creation of man, Hashem Elohim created man. In other words, God, Rashi says, God saw that human beings cannot be treated with justice because then they're going to be wiped out and uh, so therefore Hashem had to um, treat her create man with both attributes the attribute of Hashem which is kindness and the attribute of Elohim which is justice but why is that so the answer is the word of creation for man is Vayitzer Vayitzer Vav Yud Yud Sadiresh so the question we have this question is brought down by the Balaturim on this verse the Balaturim asked this question he says, I want to quote to you, Vayitzer. It says, we have this word twice in the Torah. Over here, it's, it's uh, got two yuds. And later on, by the creation of animals, it only has one yud. Vayitzer. So why does Vayitzer have two yuds? And the word Vayitzer means to create something from something else. There's creation from nothing, which is bore, bara, bereshi, bara, elokim. Hashem created the world from nothing. And there's Vayitzer, Hashem created man from other building blocks. Obviously the atoms existed and the physical uh, elements existed and Hashem created man from other physical elements. That's the word Vayitzer. So he says, why does he have the two yuds over there? So the Balaturim tells us, Man has this word Yitzer, creation, also has another meaning, which is the Yitzer, which is the inclination. Man has two inclinations. A person has a bad inclination, a person has a good inclination. And, you know, the, the world was created to be exact, but human beings cannot be exact because we are always on the fence being pulled in different directions. There's no way of knowing in advance how a person will act and how a person will decide because we're pulled in different directions all the time. And depending on the person's framework, wherever he is at that time, he can make good decisions and they can make bad decisions. We are pulled in different directions and this is the joke in the pack. So Hashem created the world with exactitude. The, the physical world works in uh, very, very tight boundaries and you can figure them out and you can compute them. Whereas human beings don't work within tight boundaries. They are, they are the joke in the pack. They have free choice. We have free choice. We have two inclinations. Whereas later on, when it talks about the creation of animals, in chapter 2, verse 19, it says, Vayitzer with only one yud. So the Balaturim says, whereas the animals only have one inclination. What does that mean, one inclination? Animals work by instinct. They don't work by being pulled in two directions. They don't have to make choices. Human beings are the ones with choices. And that's the choices that gets us into trouble. It's these choices that makes us so interesting uh, because we can never tell what a person is going to do. We can never tell which way a person is going to go. We can never tell which way society is going to go because society is based on many people's decisions.
And therefore, that's what makes life so interesting is this, this joker in the pack that we have uh, a person, you don't know how a person's going to wake up the next morning. What they're going to do the next morning. A person may go to sleep in a very good uh, way and wake up the next morning from, as we say, the wrong side of the bed. So it's impossible to predict a human being's actions. Very, very possible. It's improbable to predict human beings' actions, although we're going to see the Rambam. We're going to get to this Rambam by the end of the class. You know, I love Hilchot Deot, the laws of character traits in the Rambam, because we're going to see that most of Bereshit is telling us how to behave as human beings. So let's just discuss. Uh, firstly, let's go off. And so we have this beautiful creation, this uh, gorgeous world was called Gan Eden. It's called the Garden of Eden, in which we have Adam and Eve in Garden of Eden. And Adam and Eve were given only one mitzvah. Hashem gave them one mitzvah. And that mitzvah was not to eat from the fruit. So take literally, it was a kashrut mitzvah. It was a mitzvah of forbidden food. And that one mitzvah was just too much for them and they couldn't keep it. And then, so we see the first sin in the Garden of Eden was a sin between man and God. Ben Adam, Lamakom. And then we get to the next sin, which is the sin of Cain killing his brother. That's a sin between man and man. So we have two different kinds of categories of misdeeds. One is the misdeed between man and God, which we see right at the beginning. Adam and Eve, they ate from the fruit, they broke God's command. And number two is this fratricide, Cain kills his brother, terrible man against man. So we have these two different categories, which continue through history. Through the history of Breshit, we have the, the flood, the flood situation, which is a situation the rabbis tell us of Man and man, they never respected each other. The world was full of violent robbery. That's man and man. And then we get to the next situation, which used to be idyllic, like United Nations. You had a whole world. They spoke all one language. They were unified. And they built this tower, unfortunately, to rebel against God. So that's man against God. So you have these two different focuses. The, the story of Breshid, the, the stories of Breshid started with these two focuses. How, um, how is humanity going to act regards to their creator? How is humanity going to act regarding each other? Now, Rashi tells us a very interesting thing, that Hashem regards uh, laws between man and man as being more important than laws between man and God. What does that mean? How do we see this? We see that in the flood experience, which was where they were violent against each other, they stole from each other, Hashem destroyed the world except for this uh, eight, ten people, uh, sorry, eight people, which uh, Noah and his family, eight people were saved. Whereas in the story of the Tower of Babel, where the people would, would, were rebelling against God, no one, no one was actually killed. The language was mixed up, which is the word Babel, Babel in uh, English. Uh, came from the Tower of Babel. Hashem mixed up all the languages, and that's a babel of voices. So the word Babel, uh, Babel, Babel came from that uh, instance. Why did Hashem mix up their voices and not kill them? Because they got along. There was unity. We see that where there's unity, Hashem is willing to forgive the man and God aspect. But where there's no unity, Hashem is not willing to forgive it. So man and God is a little bit less in God's eyes. In other words, at least you can be unified and Hashem is willing to forgive. If there's no unity. We see this later on also in the Tanakh. The, the, the Talmud asks, why, how come in, this, in, the, in the book of kings, one of the worst kings of Israel was Ahab, Ahab, Ahab. Ahab had this uh, tendency to worship idols. He was a big idol worshiper. 
So why did Ahab win all his wars except for his last one? And how come David sometimes did not win his wars? So the Gemara says, because in the time of David, they spoke Lashon Ara against each other and they were not united. Whereas in the time of Ahab, even though they were idol worshippers, they were united. So we see this concept of unity being strength. Unity is strength, even in the eyes of God. God is willing to forego a man and God relationship if there's unity between the people. So a very, very important concept by the beginning of Rashid is this concept, these two relationships, the relationship between man and God and the relationship between man and man. That's, that's the, that's, those are the themes really going through Rashid. How does man react to God? How does God react to man? So let's just go through a little bit of uh, Rashid and see these themes coming alive. And it's interesting also, the themes in Rashid are, it goes from the universal down all the way from the universal down, it goes through the nations, and then it comes down to one family. So the Torah starts off on a very broad path. Man was created in the image of God, which means all humanity related, all of us. It's a tremendously major point, which the Torah makes over here, is all human beings were created in the image of God. Uh, there's no such thing. Uh, the concept of equality of man. This is the equality of man, which eventually became part of American uh, philosophy, and before that, maybe uh, French philosophy, uh, British philosophy, this universality of man. And that's when society started rejecting uh, slavery. The man was created in the image of God. All human beings were created in the image of God. A tremendously revolutionary concept is at the beginning of Breshit. But the Torah goes and takes that concept and then slowly narrows the path of humanity, which it discusses. So it starts off by talking about These are the generations, the family of Adam. Adam, until it gets, until the chosen line of Shet, until Noah, and then it says Noah, these are the families of Noah. And then it says these are the families of the children of Noah. And the last descendant of the family of Noah is Abraham. And then we start, these are the families of Terach, who was the father of Abraham. And then, and that's how Breshid ends with the stories of the children of Yaakov. So it seems it starts off very broad, talking about the universality of man. And then it ends off with the story of the sons of Abraham, Yitzhak, and then Yaakov. And it ends over there. And that's the Torah now is focusing now on the sons of Yaakov, which we know Yaakov's other name was Yisrael, which is interesting because Yaakov is two names. And we don't find this. We've, you know, Abraham had a change of name from Avram to Abraham, but he never retained his previous name. Once his name was given as Abraham, we're not allowed to call him Avram anymore, the Talmud says. And, but however, Yaakov uh, is always, uh, he can be mentioned in both ways. Yaakov can be mentioned as Yaakov, and Yaakov can be mentioned as Israel, and the names are very disparate. They're tremendously, totally different names. Yaakov comes with Ekev, which means heel. Not a very good name. I would never call my son a heel. It has very bad connotations. Uh, okay, so he's holding on to, uh, it says he was holding on to his brother's heel when he was, came out, and he was holding on to Esau's heel. So would you call your child a heel? I mean, today there's many people called Yaakov. And Yisrael is a beautiful name. Yisrael, it can be translated as Yashar El. He was straight to God. Yisrael, he could uh, fight God, which means to fight the angel and win. 
He could vanquish even angels, Israel, tremendously powerful name. Yaakov looks like a very low, low name, whereas Israel looks like a very powerful name. So it seems like when Yaakov was down and in the, in the passages which deal with the disappearance of Yosef, Yaakov is always called Yaakov, he's not called Israel. All of a sudden, when he finds out that, that Yosef is alive, his name changes from Yaakov to Israel. So Yaakov seems to be a low-level name when he's depressed, when he is down, when he is uh, put down, when he is discouraged, and then when he's in control, and when he's happy, and when he's powerful, he's called Israel. So there's Yaakov and there's Israel. However, Yaakov is not, why do his parents call him Yaakov, the heel? So there's another, there's a deeper explanation of Yaakov, but there's two kinds of people in the world. There's an Esau person and there's a Yaakov person. What does Esau come from? The word Esau comes from the word from Asui. Asui means ready-made. Esau came out fully ready-made. He had his hair, his uh, skin was red, his blood was uh, flowing through his body. Uh, Yaakov, it says, had no hair. You see these babies sometimes, uh, some cute babies, they're full of hair. And then the other the babies, they're bald completely. So Esau was full of hair and Yaakov was bald. So uh, Esau comes with Asui and Yaakov is, he's named after the heel came out holding onto the heel. So what's the difference between the two names? So Esau, it says Asui, ready-made. Ready-made means this is our society. Our society is a ready-made society. I want it and I want it right now. I'm not willing to control, control and curb my desires for anything. I want to be satisfied now. And that was Esau. Esau is Asui. I want it. I want it now. I'm ready made. I need everything ready at my beck and call. And that's why Esau was willing to sell his birthright, which he viewed as a barrier to his, uh, his uh, desires. And uh, he said, why should, I, why should I get the birthright? What does it entail? I don't want to be a high priest. I want to be killed by God for disobeying his rules. And therefore, I don't need this birthright. This birthright is going to hold me back from all my pleasures of this world. Whereas Yaakov, it says he's a heel. Heel is an end person. There's a parasha called Ekev. Vahaya Ekev Tishmun. At the end, Ekev means the end. Ekev is the end of the body. Yaakov is an end person. Esav is a here and now person. Yaakov is an end person. As Yaakov says, you know what? I'm willing to sacrifice the here and now for the future. Esav says, I'm not willing to sacrifice the here and now for the future. I live for the here and now. And I don't live for the future. Yaakov is a person who's willing to sacrifice the here and now for the future. That's Yaakov. Anyway, so the Torah is talking about two different categories of people. And that is people who are willing to sacrifice the here and now for the future, for the afterlife, for the uh, posterity. And then there's the people who are not willing to sacrifice even an item, iota for the next world or for investment in the future, not worried about the future, just living for the present. So that's, uh, that's number one. Number two is there's two kinds of people, people who worry about laws between man and God, and there's people who worry about laws between man and man. And we have to, as a, as a people, as a Jewish people, we have to worry about both. We have to be concerned between laws between man and man and the laws between man and God as well. Now we have another kind of category, and that is those who are running away from God and those who are running towards God. And that's also in Breshit. Breshit talks about, as the Rabban brings down, the laws of idolatry, that idolatry started in the time of Enosh. Enosh was the sixth generation after Adam. The Rabban brings down the time of Enosh, human beings made a terrible mistake. And that is, they said, just like a king desires people to give honor to his courtiers and his ministers, so too God wants us to give 
honor to his messengers and his ministers and his courtiers, which is the sun, the moon, and the stars. And that's how people started giving honor to the sun, moon, and stars, and eventually started worshiping the sun, the moon, and the stars, and they started forgetting about God. So we have people who are running away from God, as they did in the Tower of Babel, and there's people running towards God. However, there's not many people running towards God. So we have this concept of a chosen nation, which especially we're going to talk about next week, where Hashem sends a message to Paro through Moshe. And he tells Paro a very strange line. Beni Bechori Yisrael, my, my, my child, my oldest son, Israel. Israel is my oldest child. Israel is my chosen child. Yes, all the nations of the world are my children, but Israel is a special child to me. So why do we have this concept of a chosen nation? Why do we have this concept of a chosen people? And the answer is Hashem chose us not because Hashem chose us, it's because we chose him. It's because Abraham Avinu from all the people in the world except for a few. It says the son of Shem was still alive, Malchitzedek. Uh, sorry, the son of uh, Noah, Shem, was called Malchitzedek Melech Shalem. He was the king of uh, Yerushalayim, Shalem. And he was alive at that time. He believed in God. There was a few others, Eber, his uh, grandson, and uh, Shem and Eber. So they had the yeshiva. And there's obviously a few others who, have, uh, who had also uh, uh, belief in, in Hashem. But Abraham Avinu went out of his way to choose Hashem. And not just choose Hashem, he went out of his way to be a kind of missionary. He went around the world bringing in people, it says, and all the people he made in Haran. All the people he had made in Haran, Rashi says he made the men believe in God. And she, Sarah, would also bring women in to believe in God. So they were the first ones to spread the, this notion of one moral uh, all-powerful God in the world. So this concept of ethical monotheism came from Abraham Avinu, but already pre-existed. We have to remember, it's not, he didn't invent it, it was pre-existed, because uh, Adam, all the way through Noah, there were people who knew about God and believed in God and knew about ethical monotheism, but Abraham Avinu brought it back and tried to spread it in the world. So that was the mission of Abraham Avinu. So what is the purpose of the book of Breshi? So normally the Torah, the rest of the Torah can consist of mitzvot, or many, many mitzvot, 613 mitzvot. In the book of Breshit, there's the mitzvah of Pruravu having children. There's a mitzvah of Brit Milah, which is Abraham Avinu who had a Brit Milah, and he gave his sons a Brit Milah. And we have the mitzvah of Gidhan Asher, which is when Yaakov Avinu was hit by the angel in his thigh, and the mitzvah not to eat the sciatic nerve. So we have three mitzvot in the book of Breshit out of 613 mitzvot. So... Breshit is really the anomaly in the Torah. Breshit doesn't have many mitzvot. Breshit is not a book of mitzvot. Breshit is a book of narrative. So the question we have is, why is Breshit? Why is Breshit a book of narrative? So there's a few different beautiful explanations. Rashi asked this question right at the beginning of the Torah. Rashi asks, he says, what is the book of Breshit? What is the Torah? What's the whole purpose of the Torah? Isn't the whole purpose of the Torah to give us mitzvot? If that's the purpose, then this whole book is really... Um, moving away from its purpose. So Rashi answers this whole book of the creation of the world, the whole story of the creation of the world was because later on he says the nations of the world are going to call us robbers. You know, this is very interesting. This is very, very topical. The nations of the world are going to call us robbers because we stole the land of Canaan from the Canaanites. Okay. So Rashi says, so we can answer Hashem created the world and Hashem took the land away from them and gave it to us. 
By the way, that's also wrong. The land of Canaan belonged to the Canaanites. The land of Canaan was originally given to the sons of Shem. And that's why Shem, Malchiserek, Merak Shalev, who was Shem, lived in Jerusalem. The Canaanites conquered it from the sons of Shem. And we are the sons of Shem, that's already belongs to us anyway. But that's interesting, Rashi, because just recently the United Nations keeps on passing these resolutions. The only country they can pick on all the time is Israel. Why? Because they claim we stole the land. So this Rashi is very, very famous and should be famous. Every Jew should know this Rashi. Hashem created the world. Hashem gave us this land. Uh, I remember when uh, uh, I think it was Isaac Herzog, who was uh, the representative of Israel to the United Nations, he actually took his Bible and he read these verses where God gives the land to the sons of Abraham. So I, I don't know how much water that would hold today in the United Nations, but it's interesting how uh, they keep on hammering at this theme that Rashi brings up at the beginning of the Torah. That we took the land away from them, we're robbers, and we don't whatever. So anyway, that's number one. Number two, Ramban says, of course, we need to start the Torah with creation because it's a fundamental of our faith. The fundamental of our faith is there's a God all-powerful who created this world. It's one of the fundamentals of our faith. We believe this world was created by God. And that's a tremendously important concept, although there are two concepts in terms of God. There's the creator, and then there's the interferer, because we don't really focus our prayers on the God of creation, right? What do we focus our prayers around? We focus our prayers around Yitzhak Mitzrayim. We focus our prayers, the third paragraph of the Shema is all about coming out of Mitzrayim, Zecher Yitzhak Mitzrayim became part of our Shabbat process and all the festivals are all Zecher Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Why? Because we don't just believe in a God who created and walked away. Some people say that was Einstein's belief, that God created the world and he walked away from the world. In other words, he is not interested in what mankind is up to. And according to Einstein, or at least that's what they say in his name, we are like ants walking around. And God is way above the ants. And uh, just like we have no interest in what the ants are up to, Hashem has no interest in us. That is totally the opposite of what Judaism says. How do we know? Because Judaism focuses on everything is a remembrance that God took us out from Egypt. In other words, God is very much involved in our world. And God is very much concerned with us. And God can perform miracles if he wants to. And he's interfering in the world all the time. The fact that Jews are here back 2,000 years later, I think it's a, it's a tremendous, it's a revealed miracle. I don't think it's a hidden miracle. It's a revealed miracle that God's promises have been fulfilled after thousands of years. So it's a massive miracle. So we believe in the God of not just the creator walked away, but the creator and the interferer. God is the most powerful interferer. So God interferes in the, in the national state. God interferes in the international state and God can also interfere in a person's personal life. And that's why we pray to God. We pray to God because we believe he has the capabilities and the care and the concern and the love to worry about us and help us as well. So we pray to God. So sometimes we don't deserve it. Sometimes we do deserve it, but Hashem uh, does care about us. We believe Hashem cares about us. Okay. So, what, so we have this concept of creation. Without creation, the Rashbam says, we wouldn't understand certain laws. For example, the laws of Shabbat. Why do we have a Shabbat? A Shabbat is a concept of edut. There are different kinds of mitzvot in the Torah. There's a mishpatim, which are civil laws. There's hukim, which are laws with no rational reason. And then there's ediot. Ediot, or 
Edut. Edut is laws of testimony. Sometimes we have mitzvot which are based on testimony. We do third things, for example, keeping Shabbat. Is a testimony, is Edut. When you say, you have to stand up, you're giving testimony. We stand up for Kiddush on Friday night because we're giving testimony that God is the one who created the world in, in six days and rested on the seventh. And that's why we have Shabbat. So without the creation of the world, there'll be no Shabbat. So some of the laws would be impossible to understand without the background of creation. That's the Rosh Bam. Um, also laws of Shemitah, which is next year, uh, letting the land lie fallow every seven years. Again, this concept that God is the one who created the land, who created the world, and he tells us the land belongs to him. That's the, the idea of, um, of Shemitah. Sforno suggests the depiction of the sins of early mankind in Breshit provide the rationale for why Hashem chose Israel and rejected other nations. So we said that Hashem chose Israel because we chose him. But as Sforno says, just by looking at what was going on around the same time as Abraham, we could tell that Abraham was the most righteous individual around that time. And that's why Hashem chose Abraham. It's not just because Abraham chose him, but also because... And we're going to see this later in the Torah. It says, Hashem says, I'm giving you the land of Canaan, not because you are so good. It's because they are so bad. So it was a relative choice, not just an absolute choice. It was a relative choice as well. The Shadal points out that Breshit is crucial for the belief in monotheism. And so we, there's only one God. This concept of one God goes through this whole book of uh, Breshit. So universal values that the concept of unity of God, the universal universality of man, and uh, which is the foundation for social justice and love of mankind. So obedience to and belief in God throughout Breshit, we have this concept that patriarchs were had to demonstrate their faith in God, their willingness to follow his word. And coping with difficulty, we find uh, that one of the themes through Breshit is coping with difficulty in family life, in barrenness, in political conflicts in family strife and economic difficulties and famine and keeping one's faith through all these different strifes. Um, this concept of delayed gratification we talked about with Esau and Yaakov, uh, the dangers of favoritism and repercussions of jealousy, which we're gonna talk about more uh, shortly. So certain themes go right through this uh, book. Um, the Ramban has based on the Tanhuma Midrash Tanhuma points to many parallels this concept of what the forefathers went through is really something which eventually their children will have to go through as well. So different exiles that Abraham and Yaakov had to go through represented the exiles that we had to go through ourselves. Um, so the four uh, kingdoms uh, which are going to be ruling over Israel, um, which are foretold by the battle of the kings, Abraham had the covenant of pieces and Yaakov's dream in Beit El, all this portended these four kingdoms which are going to rule over us, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks and the Romans. So all these things that happen in their lives of the forefathers are seem to uh, symbolic of themes that have come, come up and, and treat in their own children. So it's really basically 2000 years of human history. The first 2000 years of human history at the end of Breshit covers Abraham Avin was born in the Jewish law, in the Jewish calendar in 1948. It's very easy to remember. In the Jewish year, Abraham Avin was born in 1948. 
Yitzhak was born in 2048 in the Jewish calendar, which is from the beginning of the world. And the Jews came out of Egypt 400 years after the birth of Yitzhak, which is 2448 in the Jewish calendar, 2448. So that's the first 2000 odd years of, of uh, human history is encapsulated in the book of Breshit, whereas the next four, uh, four books only cover 40 years of history. So interesting. The book of Breshit carries the most, covers the most history of humanity. And that's why it's focusing, it's not just focusing on a small group, it's focusing on all humanity, because that was the time period that it talks about. Okay, we are moving on. The book of Breshit is also full of rejections, rejections of different societies, rejection of Cain and his line, rejection of the world of the flood. God destroyed them, he rejected them. Um, the rejection of the world of the tower, the rejection of Canaan, the cursing of Canaan, the rejection of Lot and his family, who had to move away from Abraham, the rejection of Yishmael and his family, rejection of Esau and his family. And maybe that's the reason why the brothers sold Yosef, because they really believed that Yosef was planning that they should be rejected as well. That's what the rabbis tell us is they thought that he was a rodef. He had, he was a kind of, he was running after them. He was chasing after them. And more of that later that uh, he had to do to Shuba for that as well, which we're going to talk about. So there's a lot of different themes going on in the book of Breshit. And uh, I just want to turn to a little, uh, an article written by Rabbi Sachs many years ago. And Rabbi Sachs asked the question, what is from the call of Hashem to Abraham in Genesis 12 to the death of Yosef in Genesis 15 is the basic religious principle being taught? What religious principle, what are we learning from these stories? What is the major principle? So he really goes out on a limb I would never have thought of that, about this by myself. But this is Rabbi Sachs, goes out on a limb and says, there's one theme that goes right through all these stories. And this theme is the rejection of Judaism of promiscuity. Very interesting, because I would never have thought about this myself. But this is Rabbi Sachs and his greatness. Alaba Shalom. And uh, he says, I just want to read it to you what he says. Abraham, Isaac, and Yaakov all recognize Hashem. And the Soviet non-Jews. I would say Malchitzedek, who was uh, Shem, the son of Noah, um, who, was, who was called the priest of God Most High. Even Paro, Yosef talks to Paro, and Paro says, is there any other person who has Hashem's spirit in this man? Hashem speaks to Abraham, Isaac, Yaakov, but he also speaks to Avimelech. He speaks to Laban. So what is so special about the patriarchs, he says? That's his question. Um, okay, so he answers a very unexpected answer. He says there's a theme in Breshit from the choice of Abraham that goes right through seven times. Whenever a member of the covenantal family leaves his or her space and enters the wider world of their contemporaries, they, account, they encounter a world of promiscuity. Very strange. This is a very interesting concept. Three times, Abraham and Yitzhak are forced to leave homes because of famine. Twice they go to Gerar, which is where the Pelishtim are. Once Abraham goes to Egypt, on all three occasions, the husband fears he will be killed so that the local ruler can take his wife into his harem. All three times they put forward the story that their wife is actually their sister. Okay, because of fear of death. In the fourth case, Lot in Sodom. The people cluster around Lot's house, demanding he bring out his two visitors so that they can be raped. 
In the fifth case, in Shechem, a local prince rapes and adopts Dina. He holds a hostage. Then comes a marginal case, the story of Judah and Tamar, which is more complex. And then there's a sixth episode in last week's parasha, where Potiphar's wife attempts to seduce Yosef. So there's a continuing theme, he says, in, Gen- in Breshit. From chapter 12 all the way to chapter 50, the difference between the people of Abraham and his descendants and their neighbors. And it's not only about idolatry, but rather about adultery, promiscuity, seduction, rape, and other kinds of sexual violence. This is very fascinating. So he says the word that Abraham Avinu, he says, used that he, was, he believed in Hashem. And Hashem considered it a favor. He believed in Hashem. Abraham Avinu trusted in Hashem. The word for trust is emunah. Abraham Avinu had emunah in Hashem. So this is Rabbi Sachs. Rabbi Sachs says emunah does not just mean trust in Hashem. Emunah is a conduct of faith uh, between people. It's a conduct of faith, which is faithfulness as opposed to promiscuity between the sexes. It's amazing, amazing concept. And that's one of the reasons why Abraham Avinu was chosen, not just because of his faith in, uh, in God, but also his faith, the act- actions of faith between uh, people actions of faith between the sexes. And that's this is something which is very con- interest- interesting. Um, I have a personally have another take on the end of Breshi, which I'm going to talk about now. So let's just go back. So Rabbi Sachs says the theme through the last chapters of Breshi is this theme of emunah, which is, you know, it's, it's interesting because the term used in the Ten Commandments, where in the term, in the second commandment, where it says don't have any other gods, uh, Hashem used the word I am a zealous. I am a jealous God. El Kana. I am a jealous God. It's like a, it's like a, in relationships, um, crimes of passion, jealousy, because there's no, there's no emuna between the two people involved in relationships. So that's the concept of emuna which Rabbi Sachs is talking about. It's not just emuna between God and man. There's also emuna between people, which is faith in a couple, in a marriage. Um, not having a promiscuous marriage, uh, faith between other relationships, uh, no one should steal other people's wives, adultery, uh, rape, promiscuity, all these things are a lack of emunah. They're, they're uh, social uh, relationships with no emunah. Anyway, that's Rabbi Sachs. I want to give a different perspective at the end of Breshit, and that is a topic of teshuva. The end of Breshit really is the topic of teshuva. So what are the topics of teshuva and Breshit? Number one, we find that Ishmael and Yitzhak make up, they become friends again. How do we know that Ishmael and Yitzhak make friends? The Torah says, when they came to bury Abraham Avinu after he passed away, it says, first came Yitzhak and then Ishmael. And Rashi says over there that Ishmael gave in to Yitzhak. Ishmael put Yitzhak first, Ishmael did teshuva, and he made friends with Yitzhak and he gave uh, Yitzhak preferential treatment. He recognized the superiority of Yitzhak and the choice of his father to choose Yitzhak over him. So interesting, that's number one. Number two, Yaakov, when he meets Esav at the beginning of Parsha Vayeshev, he gives him gifts and he makes up with Esav. They leave in friendship. So again, Yaakov is doing Teshuvah. Yaakov gives, says, gives him presents and he leaves Esau very pacified. So here is the teshuva of Yaakov. Yaakov tricks Esau, and Yaakov gives Esau back the bracha. And uh, Esau says, 
יש לי רב אחי, יהיה לך שלך. I have a lot, my, my brother, you should have whatever you have. So Esav is giving in to Yaakov, in a sense he's forgiving Yaakov. So that is the kind of teshuvah of Yaakov with Esav. Um, then we have the teshuvah of Reuven. Reuven uh, switched his father's beds when his mother passed away, and uh, Yaakov put Bilhaz bed in his tent. And uh, Reuven went and switched the beds of his father, showed a disgrace to his father, and uh, he uh, had to do teshuvah. So what does Reuben do? It says Reuben tried to stop the brothers killing Yosef. He's, they wanted to actually kill him, physically kill him in cold blood. He says, why should we kill him? Just throw him in the pit. And Rashi says his intention was to come back and take him out of the pit, but he had to go back to his father and he was busy with his sackcloth and fasting for the sin that he had done to his father. So, but he was busy and he was going to come back and take Yosef out of the pit. So it says Teshuvah for his sin. Yehuda. Uh, repents for his sin with Tamar and last week's parasha Yudah is repenting for the sin of selling, of causing Yosef to be sold, he advised the brothers to sell Yosef and Yehuda has to do teshuva, how does he do teshuva? He's unwilling to leave Binyamin and let him rot in uh, a jail in Egypt and he says I am his guarantor I'm not leaving without him, so that's his teshuva of uh, not willing to get rid of his brother um, the brothers as a group repeat admitting their sin in selling Yosef. We are sinners. We have sinned with our brother and we never heard, we heard his cries and we never had mercy on him. And that's why these things are happening to us. So the brothers also do teshuva. So now I want to talk about in this week's parasha is what about the teshuva of Yosef? Because Yosef was really, if you think about it and you see, read the parashiot, where these uh, the stories of uh, Parshat uh, Vayeshev, um, Yosef was a big cause of all the troubles that happened to him. He was a bit of a troublemaker. Yosef was a bit of a troublemaker when he was young, because we find at the beginning of Parshat Vayeshev that Rashi lays it on. Rashi says in chapter 37, Yosef spoke, well, the Torah says, Yosef spoke bad about his brothers. Dibara ah is bad speech about his brothers, Lashon Hara. Rashi lays it on. Rashi says he said three things. Number one is they were eating ever minahai. They were eating a limb from a living animal. Okay. Number two is they were calling their brothers and sisters from the slaves. No, actually, their brothers, no, the sister was from Leah. Their brothers from the slaves, from uh, the, the, save, uh, the maidservants, Bilha and Zilpa, the four brothers. Um, they were calling them slaves. And number three, they were engaging in immorality. Okay, so they were eating every minachai, which is they're eating limbs cut off from a live animal. Hard to, hard to believe. They were calling their half-brothers slaves, and they were engaged in being immoral. So we see straight away that three things happened to Yosef. It says when they dipped his coat in the blood of the goat, they actually slaughtered the goat. Right? It wasn't ever been a high. It wasn't a limb from a live animal. It wasn't just cutting the neck and letting the blood come out. They actually slaughtered. They actually killed it. They didn't take the blood out without killing it. Number two is they were calling their brothers slaves. That he was sold as a slave. Number three is they were engaged in immorality, and because of that, Hashem put Potiphar's wife to seduce him and to make him immoral. So whatever he said came back to haunt him. 
Um, the second issue he, he had was recounting the dreams. He was telling them dreams, but interesting, in Yosef's dreams, there's no mention of God. There's no mention of a divine hand. This is all seems to be very egocentric. It's him, his greatness, he's at the center of the world. There's no view of Hashem. And that was his second sin was he never mentioned God at all in his dreams. It was not a divine plan. It was egocentricity. So, and number three is his conceit in recounting the dreams to his brothers and his father. Go to the Ramban over here in chapter 37, verse eight. The Torah says they hated him for the dreams and Ramban says, and for the conceited ways in which he recounted them. It was, he was bragging. He wasn't just stating fact. He was actually bragging. I'm better than you. You watch, I'm going to be all powerful. You guys are going to bow down to me. And uh, I'm the greatest. So the question we have is, where is Yosef's teshuva? He did all these three, th three things at least. So where is his teshuva? So when explaining the butler and the baker and Paro's dreams, he always says, it's not me. He says, Hashem will reveal what your dream means. So this is the teshuva for his uh, lack of mentioning God's name or God's capabilities in his dreams. So all his egocentricity, he's doing teshuva for his egocentricity earlier on when he talked to his brothers about his dreams. And he made out as if it's me, it's me, it's me. I'm going to be the greatest. Over here, we see the humility coming back when he's explaining the dreams of the butler, the baker, and Paro, it's not me. Hashem is going to tell you what your dreams mean. So he came to understand, he came to realization that he's, he's not powerful. How do you come to that realization? So number one is when the brothers threw him in the pit. Can you imagine? You cannot be more helpless. Imagine a person's thrown in a pit and there's no way out of that pit. And he's screaming and shouting and trying to climb out and he can't get out and and he's starving and he's hungry and there's no way to get out. And he realized, I'm not all powerful. I thought I was all powerful. I thought I was the center of the universe, but now I realize I'm not all powerful. I need God in my life. Then he's thrown, he's uh, sold to Potiphar. Okay, Potiphar's house, he does very well. And again, he gets a little bit, uh, goes to his head. So he's thrown again into a pit. The second time he's thrown in a pit, that was the dungeon, but it's also called a pit. So here, Yosef really metamorphosizes. He changes into a different person. He changes into a humbler, nicer, sweeter Yosef. And uh, so twice in his life, he's thrown into a pit. The first time was an actual pit. The second time was a dungeon, probably worse than any kind of pit you could ever imagine. And he realized that all is in the hands of heaven. So here he's getting humble over here. And in his, in his uh, explanation of the dreams, um, in his explanation of the dreams, we find that he becomes humble. The recognition of the limits of power and might. He gathers all the money of Egypt, right? He gathers all the cattle of Egypt, he gathers all the people of Egypt as his slaves. He makes them uh, to come to the cities from one end of Egypt to another. However, in uh, verses 23, 24, he has a change of heart. He gives them seeds and land and tells them one third is for Paro. So the question is, why did he relent? Why did Yosef not just take all the money and all the people and all the land, make them all slaves, and, and that's it? So the answer, so the answer over here is on reflection, Yosef understood the seven years of famine will end. The years of servitude and humiliation felt by the Egyptians may erupt into real rebel rebellion. Therefore, he gave them a good deal, and they were very grateful. 
and they told him, you have saved us. So Yosef underwent a change. He recognized the limits of power and might as opposed to his gloating over the power of his brothers. So where was the tikkun? Let's, let's go back a little bit. We said he sinned with Lashon Hara. He sinned with bad speech about his brothers. He was saying they were, they were talk, talking about them. Their half-brothers, they were slaves. Um, they were eating every minachai. They were uh, being immoral. So where's the tikkun of the Lashon Hara? So we, it's a very fascinating discussion between the Ramban and Rashi over here. Did Yosef actually tell his father that his brothers had sold him? Does Yaakov, does, does Yaakov know that what caused Yosef to end up in Mitzrayim? Did Yaakov ever have a conversation with Yosef? Now, it's interesting also, if you look through the parasha, you'll find that Yosef tries to keep away from his father as much as possible. His father's in Goshen, he's away in the capital city, wherever it is, Ramses or wherever it is. And there's not much contact until it says that Yaakov was sick and then they called for Yosef to come. And Yosef came with his two sons, but it seems like there was a separation between them. So there's some people, the Ramban says that Yosef purposely tried to keep away from his father Yaakov, never to get involved in this conversation. Yosef, how did you get to Egypt? Who got you to Egypt? How did you get there? So according to Ramban, he never revealed to his father what his brothers did to him. So that is the tikkun of the Lashon Hara that he spoke. Imagine, early his life, he had plenty of things bad to say about them, but when he could really say something bad about them, he refrained. That's amazing. So I just want to read you this Ramban. It seems to me, Ramban says, in chapter 45, verse 27, from a literal reading of the text, that Yaakov was never informed that the brothers had sold Yosef. Rather, he thought that Yosef had become lost in the fields, and whoever had found him had taken him and sold him to Egypt. The brothers did not wish to tell Yaakov of their sin. They feared for their lives. Lest he cursed them, like he cursed the Ruva and Shimon and Levi, we find in this parasha. And Yosef did not want to tell them. Amazing. So that's a, that's a Ramban's opinion, that Yosef's repentance was he never told his father about something that he could really have made tremendous trouble, got his brothers into trouble, and that was his tikkun for the Lashon Hara. However, Rashi seems to say, that when uh, Yaakov is blessing Shimon and Levi, he's really cursing them, cursing their anger, he says to them, he says, uh, Shimon and Levi are brothers. So Rashi says they're brothers in their uh, collusion to destroy Shechem and to kill Yosef. So according to Rashi, that Yaakov was alluding to the fact that Shimon and Levi were involved in the destruction of Yosef. And also Rashi says, when it talks about Yehuda, Meteref, Beni Alita, you removed yourself from the destruction of my son that you intended to kill him and you stopped um, uh, killing him. You said, let's sell him instead of killing him. So there's a whole discussion. But anyway, what's interesting is Yosef went out of his way not to tell his, his uh, father. And uh, so that was Yosef's teshuva. We find Yosef did teshuva. So we have a, let's just finish off with this, uh, this concept. So Breshit ends off. Let's just talk about the end of Breshit. A new idea. This idea, which is an old idea, uh, which is the idea, the concept of ethical monotheism. Ethical monotheism has been introduced to the world by Abraham Avinu. There's one God who wants us to be good. One God who is a moral God, an ethical God. He wants us to be moral. He wants us to be ethical. He, uh, Abraham Avinu manages to convey a unique philosophy and lifestyle to his children and his grandchildren. By the concluding portion of Breshi, the family has left its, its, its home in Israel. 
and is already in exile. You know, you know I see this, there's a theme in Breshit. I don't see many people talking about it. And that is Garden of Eden and the exile from the Garden of Eden. There's another theme of Israel and exile from Israel. And it's interesting because the next four books talk about exile in Egypt and the trying to go back to Israel. You know, it's interesting, Torah does not end off with being in Israel. Torah ends off on the verge of being in Israel. Moshe Rabbeinu dies before going into Israel. So it seems, it's in a sense, it's like very tantalizing that Israel is today's Gan Eden. And that's Bezra Hashem will make Israel over here. All the Jews will come back here and make it to a Gan Eden, Bezra Hashem. But that is the theme of the Torah is expulsion from Gan Eden and eventual going back into Gan Eden. And the going back to Gan Eden, if you look at the themes of the Torah, it seems to be Eretz Israel is Al Gan Eden. Anyway, so the question we have is, how is this idea of Abraham Avinu, ethical monotheism, going to survive the exile in Egypt? And that was, I think, on Yaakov's brain. How did Yaakov, before he dies, how is he going to impress his children and his posterity, his grandchildren, that it's very important. You're, you're, you're Jewish. You're not Egyptian. You're not from this land. I'm not from this land. We need to keep our value system alive. We need to get back to our country. How do you keep that? How do you get the message alive? How do you keep that message alive in exile? Last week, Parasha ends, and the Jews lived in the land of Egypt, the district of Goshen, and took possession of it, and they grew, and they multiplied exceedingly. You know, have the, the roots of assimilation are ready. So, so number one is, Yaakov asked for a separate place, Goshen. I want to live in Goshen. We are shepherds. We are not. Uh, Egyptians hated shepherds. That's number two. Number one is we're a different country. We're a different uh, state in the land of Egypt. We have our own profession, which the Egyptians hate. They're not going to intermarry with us. They hate that kind of profession. They don't even eat food with Israel, the Hebrews. But we come to number three. His request not to be buried in Egypt. I do not want to be buried in Egypt. Please give me an oath. Calls uh, Yosef to his bedside with his two sons. Take an oath. Do not bury me in Egypt. And then he recaps uh, the, the blessing God gave Abraham uh, to give the land of Israel. The next, the next uh, words, he turns to Yaakov, yeah, to Yosef. Yaakov turns to Yosef and asks him, who are these sons? Rashi explains, he asked Yosef to be buried in Machpelah. Yosef could have been thinking, you know, why wasn't my mother buried in Machpelah? Uh, so who are these sons? He looked at the sons of Yosef and they looked very assimilated. They were dressed like Egyptians. And uh, they spoke Egyptian. They were not trained by Yaakov. They were trained by Yosef and, and, the, and the counselors in the, in the palace. So how is he going to keep these children? So the key of the roots to fight assimilation is the children. How do I get the message to the sons of Yosef that they are not Egyptians? So born in Egypt, the land of their forefathers, only a, a late and not a living reality. They represented all future generations born in exile. Only dreaming of Jerusalem, Yaakov will bless them. But first, he wants them to believe, to share in his dreams of return to Israel, to adopt his customs and philosophy, to yearn with him for Jewish identity. Okay, so he wanted to imbue with them. That's why the first people he blessed, first of the children he blessed was Ephraim Menashe. He blessed the children of, of Yosef. Say, Yosef, your children will be my children. I'm going to make them my children. They're going to be part of the tribes. And I want them to adopt my ideals and lifestyle. Don't bury me in Egypt. Because Egypt represents the antithesis of whatever I believe in. We don't belong here. We don't belong in this land. Their God is not our God. 
we have our own systems. That was the message he's giving them. And that's the message he is giving us as well. That wherever we go, we have to remember that our land is not this land. Our land is here in Israel. And there's Rav Hashem, all of us will come to Israel. We will make this country into a Gan Eden. There's Rav Hashem, and this will fulfill this, uh, the whole cycle of the exile from Gan Eden.